Hi everybody, welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel and Happy New Year. It's been a bit of a tough start to the year for me and our family. My daughter decided to wake up every two hours or so for the last few weeks. And so any of you who are new parents might know that feeling of sleep deprivation, which is, I get why they use it in torture techniques. (laughs) Hell. And I think, you know, as I listen back to the podcast with Carolyn Coughlin today, our guest, you know, I'm like, ah, yeah, this is not one of my finest performances as a podcast host. I wished to have been more lucid, but here we are. It's a conversation with Carolyn Coughlin, and we're going to be talking about developmental coaching and the way that it's influenced Carolyn's work. She coaches top leaders around the world, uh, I've heard, you know, Tim Ferriss guests mention her as her coach, as their coach, and she's been highly inspired by developmental coaching. And we're going to talk today about how it enables her to kind of go beneath the surface of the content of somebody to listen for the meaning making. So that's really the, the core of this conversation. What happens when you can listen for the meaning that somebody might be making as they're speaking about? the coaching topic, the dilemmas, the aspirations they find themselves within. And that's very powerful because, you know, that that kind of programming uh, of their meaning making can create a sense of possibility or impossibility around this topic. Once you can hear that and you can make it what we would call in this in this kind of framework object then everything changes. So I wanted to highlight that phrase. Today we'll talk about subject-object. We don't define it. That's a, a term from Robert Keegan. And he was the, the developmental theorist who explored the stages of meaning-making that people can go through, that they go through these distinct stages throughout their lives. And that at each stage, a different type of meaning-making becomes possible. And that what was the subject of one stage, the water we were swimming in, you know, that we, we, we don't know that these are the beliefs we have about the world, for example, and that we just live them out as if they're the truth, unquestioned, unseen, become object at the next stage. We begin to see them. We are actually growing bigger than they are, more spacious than they are, and that changes everything. So I wanted to kind of give you that kind of introduction as we dive into this conversation. And without further ado, here is Carolyn Coughlin. Before we get into today's podcast, I have an invitation for you. We're about to kick off the ninth edition of our longest running program, The Power of Embodied Transformation. This is a program I'm really proud about because it shows you how to tap into the intelligence of change itself. One of the most profound discoveries of neuroscience is that intelligence isn't just in the domain of the mind. In fact, So much of the deep wisdom we need in order to evoke transformation actually lives in the body. And yet, so many of the people you'll encounter in your coaching have actually been trained away from accessing the wisdom of the body. So this program will reconnect you to this embodied intelligence so you can create deep, lasting change with your clients. We're honored to have a truly world-class faculty for this program. You'll learn from the founder of Somatic Coaching, Richard Strozzi Heckler, alongside contemporary coaches who've integrated this powerful approach with new discoveries in neuroscience, trauma work, and leadership development. It's going to be an amazing transformational journey, so I hope you'll come and join us. You can head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation to buck your spot. The first class is on the 6th of June with Richard, and if you sign up by May the 22nd, you can get the early bird discount. So just head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation to book your spot. Carolyn, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I can feel a slight kind of um, level of tension in my body now from um, trying to get my uh, Wi-Fi working and then not working. So that's there. Yeah. But apart from that, I'm doing pretty good. 
Yeah. Good. And we're going to talk about that today, actually. That, that, that does kind of touch in. We're going to talk about developmental theory and uh, how we can listen for meaning and include the body in that as well and navigating complexity and grief. That's quite a mixture of topics. Um, but I like that, you know, that's the way I, I tend to roll, you know, not to make things easy. So, but let me start by asking you, you know, you do a lot of work coaching leaders, uh, in different roles in, in organizations. Uh, how does developmental theory, adult development theory kind of support you to support them to thrive in the work that they, they, that they do in the world? Um, it's such a, it, it's such a great question, not because, um, I haven't heard it before, but just because of what it provoked in me ju- just in this moment, um, you know, it did provoke something different just because of where, um, what I'm up to and this, especially the focus on listening. And so let me just explain that, um, you know, I, developmental theory is, is at the core of the, of the kind of work that I do and, and particularly the coaching work. And you might think that the way that it's most helpful is in, by enabling me as the coach to kind of assess the meaning making stage of the person that I'm working with. And that is really helpful sometimes because um, getting a sense of what is, what the person seems to be subject to or, or not able to really see clearly and objectively and what they hold as object um, is, is really helpful. And, um, but, but what I find most helpful about the developmental lens actually is the way that it um, enables me to listen because uh, I'm just, I'm just constantly listening to both what the person is saying. So the, the story, but also um, what do they mean by what they're saying? <laughs> and through that lens, every word is like a treasure trove of, of, um, of curiosity. You know, I, I have to wonder what do they mean by that and what does it mean to them? So I just find it um, with this lens of, of, um, of, kind of meaning making and adult development, it's pretty hard not to listen deeply at least for me. So maybe, maybe, yeah, nice. Maybe you could, um, this idea of meaning making unpack that, um, why that's important. You know, there may be some people listening to who don't know what adult development theory is. And we've talked about that quite a lot over the years on different podcasts. So we don't, I don't think it's necessary to go into too much about the, the basics of that, but, um, Perhaps you could just share why it's effective or powerful to hear the meaning or to be able to listen and question the meaning someone might be making. Yeah, I guess it's because um, you know, each of us sees the world through the lens, through our own lens. And our lens, each of our lenses is really a multitude of different lenses, you know, our experience and what something meant to us at one time in our lives and, and what it means to us now. Um, and, and so we tend to listen at the level of, so we hear the story, we hear the words that another person is saying, and without even noticing it, we tend to interpret those words in, the, in terms of what they would mean to us. And we don't even notice that that's how we're interpreting the words. So when I talk about meaning making, what I mean is um, that, I mean, even a concept as simple as um, purpose or love or professionalism, you know, those are all words that if you listening to this podcast, if you notice, um, those words will mean something particular to you, not only in like a kind of a Webster's dictionary definition, but um, you'll run them through the whole of experience that you've had with those things. And if you unpack it, you'll see that it's not just a kind of a, a dictionary definition of the word that comes up, but it's what it has meant to you and how that 
um, how that shapes has shaped you um, and how you've shaped it. So professionalism, for example, um, all of us will have stories about what that has meant to us and, um, and how we've been that or not been that or how someone else has been that and, or not been that. Um, so there's, there's that meaning making. And then there's also, um, interestingly, any word will, if we notice it, will evoke something in our kind of felt experience as well. So not just at the cognitive level, but at the felt level. Hmm. Tell me about, you said the felt sense of it too. I think that's important. I know in, you know, adult development theory and developmental coaching, we can often get a sense of the kind of cognitive aspect of meaning making of beliefs and ideas. But um, I, I know that you're talking about meaning making as something that's an emergent property of um, our feelings and thoughts and felt sense and language and sensations. Could you unpack that a bit more? Yeah. So as you said, Joel, this, that we tend to think of meaning as a cognitive thing, um, which it is at, at some level. Um, so we make meaning, meaning like if I say to you, what do you mean by that um, thing you just said, you will tell me, um, you'll give me another description of an, another set of words that describe that thing. So let's, let's say you were telling me a story. You said some, you were telling me a story about something that was um, uh, inadequate, like it, it wasn't up to par. Let's say you were talking about an experience that was, you know, you, where you felt inadequate. Um, the, if I say, what do you mean by inadequate? You'll give me some other words that, that will tell me what you mean by that. Like you didn't meet standards or something, or somebody told you that it wasn't um, good enough or something like that. Um, but actually, when the whole idea of inadequate, for example, is um, doesn't just happen at the level of our thinking, that there are emotions that are connected with that. So if I talk about being inadequate, um, that might evoke emotions like, um, like sadness or um, embarrassment or something like that for me. And then... Um, there's also something happening with that, uh, uh, with that idea of inadequate in my body. So most of us don't notice that on a regular basis. It's not something that most of us learn to do. But if we're quiet, if I'm quiet and I pay attention to my body, I will feel something in my body that accompanies that idea of inadequate. So mm-hmm. it's happening at all these levels, but most of it, we just most people don't pay attention to those things. They tend to, we tend to go at the level of words and most people think of words as being cognitive. Mm. What I like, and I wonder what you think about this is the precision, you know, that you're talking about that, um, you know, you said, um, there just seems to be something very uh, human and compassionate about being able to connect to somebody's kind of meaning making and how that arises in their emotions and their body and to become precise about that. And what I mean is, you know, that they're able to begin to see what they didn't see about the way they make meaning in this embodied way. And, um, yeah, you know, really at the moment, what I'm really, really passionate about is I think in the early days of getting into developmental theory, I was I was into striving, you know, to get higher up. Um, and actually, um, the older I get, the more I laugh at that, that younger part of me. And um, the more I'm drawn to just being able to meet people on this precise level and how compassionate that is and how that seems to catalyze growth in itself. That is, yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm finding the same thing. Um, and that, that idea of meeting people where they are in their fullness um, is being a catalyst for growth. It's kind of counterintuitive in a way, right? I mean, it would be easy to think that, Oh, well, if I, if I see somebody um, and really see them and meet them, 
making sense in a way that I, as the coach, think is not particularly helpful in terms of what their environment is asking of them, for example. Like, it's easy for me to think as a coach, what I need to do is actually pull them along. And while that isn't totally, I mean, that's not untrue um, always, that the, the very act of meeting somebody fully where they are is is itself an enabler of growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's, like, I know you talk about SOMA and identity and context. I think that's a really useful um, kind of framework for understanding how we might help our clients to make meaning in an embodied way. Could you say what you mean by SOMA and identity and context and why they're important and how you use them in coaching? Um, There's a lot of stuff there. That will take the next hour to answer that. (laughs) Let's see what comes up right now for me. Um, So just to define the context is the way I define it is the context is kind of everything happening outside of me. So if I think of almost as my physical body as the boundary, it's everything happening outside of me. Although it could be defined other ways. That's just for purposes of this work. Um, Identity is, it's how I make sense of myself. And um, again, in the way that I talk about it. And it is a thing, the identity is... um, really an emergent property of all of my own history and um, what I care about and what I do and how I show up. But it becomes a thing over time that um, through the series of actions I take and things I talk about and all those things, it, it becomes a thing that is a, that I then have to protect, right? So who I am, I go out in the world every day and consciously or unconsciously I'm projecting the identity and identity that I want the world to see me as and then I need to protect that right because I it, it can be pretty um unsettling to to not be seen the way I want to be seen um and I think that's true for all of us to some degree but depending on depending on a lot of things, um, how tightly we hold our identity does can shift over, over the course of our lifetimes. And then SOMA is just everything. It's the, the sum total of, uh, it's my nervous system is one way I can think about it, but it's all the physical sensations um, that happen in my body. And um, the, I guess it, the really sh- short way to think about it is that when my context is asking something of me, um, especially if it's something new and unfamiliar, um, then um, my identity can get triggered. Right? So it, well, I like it best when, when what the world is asking of me is congruent with my identity so we can be in sync, but sometimes it's, um, it's, it's not. And so when my identity gets triggered, um, there's stuff happening in my body and my somatic experience. There always is, but, I, but if I can notice the connection between context asking something of me what it calls on my identity to do or be and whether that's feels congruent or triggered um, and what's happening in my somatic experience then there's a whole lot of data there that um, that I can call on that I can be paying attention to Um, and as a as a coach I can if I can help my clients to become aware of all, all of those things and then there's just this treasure trove of material to work with. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, as a developmental coach, so for example, a simple way that I might be bound in my identity is, is like, oh, being a good father means being around for a certain amount of time or being successful at work means being around for a certain amount of time, which is in some ways quite a, simple um frame you know which is um perhaps quite limited you know but if i didn't know that you know then i would be torn you know because i would be like well how do i i don't have 10 days a week you know so i want to be around for my daughter a set number of hours but i need to be around for work and that that's like you know tears my identity into you as a coach you could listen for that kind of um 
you know, um, belief that I'm subject to and then be able to offer that back to me in a way that, you know, could allow me to see it and question it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And then, and then if you, um, if we're able to help our clients notice the somatic experience that accompanies that tornness um, and that drive to, to do more, to be able to reconcile that tornness, um, then um, first of all, they can be more aware of what's happening, but then you have the, your somatic experience as a way in, right? Rather than trying to think your way out of the dilemma, you could actually, they could actually begin to, to notice and regulate their somatic experience. Because for me, if my body is telling me to do more or to run, <laughs> if I'm not conscious of that, I'll just do it. That's the way it works. Um, so we can notice and regulate and a surprising so it's a surprisingly powerful um, way to shift meaning making is actually through our bodies. Mm. Yeah. So I know this is this this is a bit of a difficult question, but what would you do in that moment uh, if somebody was feeling that that impulse to run or drive? You know, what would, what kind of move would you or inquiry would you invite the client into? Well, it it could vary, but I um, but I the first thing I would probably do is is ask them to just stop and um, experience that that sensation, whatever was happening in their bodies, to to be with it, um, to get to know it, to listen into it. So I might I might ask them uh, to um, to say hello to it. I might ask them to begin to describe the sensation, to give it whatever descriptors work for them, color, um, uh, texture, whatever it is, um, and to locate it in in their bodies and um, just talk to it. Mm. Because it's a, it, it, it that's a mechanism can be a mechanism for slowing down long enough to be with the thing and not just react to the thing. I don't think, I think it's a lot harder to regulate when we don't know what it is we're regulating. Right. I think we get into very interesting territory here for me now, you know, these, this kind of like, it's like, as if we're kind of stretching out the moment or putting, putting ourselves under a microscope in a way that, and this slowing down is important. So, okay, like there's some signs here, uh, you know, like, okay, I feel a sense of drivenness or drive. There's a dilemma. And then I'm paying attention to what's here in my body in a way that there's a kind of, um, you know, a revelation taking place or there's a kind of, it activates a sense of emergence um, and something starts to happen. So, um, you, is this like where, you know, as we sense into that tension, we can start to notice, for example, the emotion behind it or the belief that might be kind of, um, locking it in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because those things will tend to co-arise, um, um, a particular rush of adrenaline or a tightness in my, my belly, um, will tend to co-arise with um, a thought, a story about myself or the situation and an emotion. So it is back to your precision thing. I mean, it's a, it is, it's, it is getting more granular about what's actually happening. Uh, And because then there uh, very practically, there are more possible, you know, little experiments you can try to, to shift things. Hmm. That because that's what I, you know, I guess I geek out on this stuff, and um, in one way it might sound really obvious what I just said, you know, like oh, um, you know, so is it like uh, as we slow down and we can pay attention, we notice things, and it's like yeah, of course, but um, like I, there's something that fascinates me about this, you know, this sense of how we are emergent, and that like through presence we can begin to. Um, activate different possibilities you know and so 
um, like what I'm interested in is this precision and also whether, you know, um, whether change happens through, you know, trying new experiments or is it, um, you know, is it like really emergent out of like just letting go, you know, let's just really be with this, you know, this habit to this tendency you have around this situation. Mm. And let's really get precise and really be with it and not try to jump ahead and do little experiments too quickly. But, and then, and then there's what that creates space for is like the insight or something, you know, something novel to come in. Um, and so I'm wondering for you, like how you see that happening with your clients, like how do you see them developing in front of your eyes? Uh, does this make sense? Like what I'm, I think so. Yeah. And I'm, I notice myself, I'm having a little action urge myself right here to um, <laughs> a rising light. I want to, um, you know, give you an answer. Um, how long should, you know, is best for someone to stay with the noticing um, before trying experiments? That's the question that's forming in my mind, which is probably not at all what you were asking me. Um, but I'm just describing to you my experience right now, um, which is really interesting. And I, my you know, identity as a person who, you know, uh, if I, that I ought to have an answer to that. <laughs> and then I'm laughing at myself. Yeah. Um, that, so let me just sit with that question for a second. Um, the way I hear that is, again, this may not be what you meant, but the way I hear it is, is, is there something that happens simply in the noticing and being with hmm. our somatic experience that is in itself um, a potential catalyst for change. It's kind of funny because that was, that was not so different from what you noticed about what you were saying earlier in the conversation about just meeting someone where they are and and seeing them and how that can be a catalyst for change. Uh, so I guess the answer is yes, of course. And I've, I had a client really recently who, you know, was talking about a pattern of doing, um, which is pretty common probably with a lot of our clients. And that um, I asked her to notice what, when someone comes to her and with a problem and wants it fixed, um, what happens in her body? And she described in great detail. It was actually quite funny and memorable too, in great detail, where in her body she feels it, what it feels like, what it looks like. And we didn't actually do anything with it in that moment. Um, she just laughed and, and now she just comes back to that um, as a kind of a shorthand for, that moment when someone asks her to do something, comes to her with a problem and her action urge to fix it. So I think that's an example of where just noticing is um, it created the space for new possibilities that just had never occurred to her before. Mm. Yeah. And um, what I like about what you did as well was you, you kind of, actually paused and you were kind of inquiring into your own kind of sensing meaning making in the moment, you know, in response to my question. And I, I like that um, because um, it gives a certain quality to our conversation for me, which I, th which I like, you know, like um, somehow that we're um, taking the time to, to sense into how we make meaning of things, you know, and there's that kind of opens up something for me. So I, I appreciate that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to have the space to be able to do that. And I, um, I think for me, it brings in this question of complexity as well. Like, the, you know, we, this, how can we navigate complexity? The, something we've spoken before about um, on the podcast, but when, um, it really does feel like there's um, sort of it's a complex world, you know, with these events just taking place and the uncertainty that we're swimming within and um, how 
what we're talking about this way of, of like um, sensing and, and being with our experience in terms of soma identity and context can help us to um, navigate complexity. What, what, what for you is important in, in that, in navigating complexity? Like I know that's work that you do with leaders. What's for you is important in that? So what's important in general in the ability to navigate? Yeah. 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 Or, well, or specifically, you know, like, and I mean, I guess we could apply it to different topics, couldn't we? But perhaps there are like meta skills. So uh, one of the, so here's a idea I find really helpful. And that, it, that is that not everything is complex, but complexity is everywhere. <laughs> so mm. just the, um, I mean, our lives are full of complexity. And again, by, by com- back to what is that, you know, defining our words, um, what does that mean to me? When I say complexity, what I mean is that um, something is complex if, it's, um, if I can't predict how it's go- going to play out. Um, I might be able to see patterns to how it's going to play out. Um, like raising raising children is a classic example. You know, there are patterns to how kids, children grow and change. And there are even more specific patterns about how my own kids have grown and changed, for example, that I can't possibly, nor could I have ever predicted what was going to happen at every given moment, at any given moment. And that's true with all human systems, right? Um we can't predict how people are going to behave and we can't predict how people are going to work together. So um, complexity is, um, is defined for me as something that I can't predict or control. Um, It has a lot more specific definitions in some circles, but that's, um, I find that helpful and simple. Um, And so, um, but we as human beings are wired to think that we can control much more than we can actually control. So just having the language of complexity, which by definition is unpredictable and uncontrollable, um, it, 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 it's liberating. Um, it liberates us from the sense that if we just work hard enough or are smart enough or have the right people in place that we could actually control the uncontrollable, predict the unpredictable. So there's a huge liberation in that. Mm -hmm. But then some of the other things about complexity are that um, it is patterned. So one of the key skills for us leaders in complexity is to be able to observe um, and see what patterns exist in a system. Um, So you might see in an organization, for example, who tends to talk to whom? Um, where does um, where do certain kinds of work get done? Um, where do certain kinds of disagreements tend to arise? Um, you know, you can you can look for patterns. You don't know when they'll happen, but you can look for them. So the ability to observe is really really important. And yet, this gets to identity for most people. Um, observing feels like doing nothing (laughs) and the urge to act and the external pressure to act and do something is, is great. So how can um, we develop the capacity to not act or react in the face of our own conditioning to do so? And in the face of a lot of pressure to do so, Mm -hmm. Um, there's also a lot of pressure to know. Um, And again, for a person who's paid a lot of money to know stuff, to not seek to know everything and position themselves as a person who knows everything is really hard. And so um, being able to understand and really see that one's own identity is at stake in the face of when asked to um, behave and lead or act in complexity-friendly ways that's kind of liberating as well. And then the question becomes, so, okay, how do I cultivate the capacity to, to be in this discomfort? Um, and part of that is somatic um, practice. Uh, part of that is developing a more nuanced way of making sense of self in the world, which is adult development. So 
Yeah. Is that, that's, is that too theoretical or is that? No, that's great. That's super. So, you know, as you're speaking, I'm reminded of then this embodied piece of this, you know, that our capacity to kind of conduct the intensity of complexity is, you know, increasing our bandwidth to do that is really important. And, um, do you do you find that that's you know that you said also uh, we have these tendencies to act and to know as leaders as people and um, do you find that's something you support the leaders you're working with to do you know like you are swimming in, in complex environments you're helping them to cultivate um, a way of being which um, you know then brings in more wisdom and compassion and intelligence in complexity. Well, yeah, and that that um, can be anything from just teaching someone about complexity and making that object, um, because as, as much as it seems it's like the water I swim in now, um, it's amazing to me how many um, leaders, really good leaders, uh, effective leaders in a lot of ways, really don't have a sense that a lot of what they're dealing with is fundamentally not under their control and couldn't be. And that the trying to make it, trying to control it is actually unhelpful. I've come back to this idea of uh, being in our bodies. You know, I think that to me in my own journey feels so key. Um, like if I get reactive with my stepson, you know, and then I've kind of, uh, you know, made him a thing and um, there's all kinds of implicit beliefs and ideas about the way he should be showing up. And, um, you know, and then I'm reactive and he feels judged and yeah, that, that just doesn't take us in the right direction. And what I, it's always for me, the body just seems to be such a gateway, like, um, for both like noticing my own reactivity, but feeling my care and my love for him as well. And, yeah. um, and, and so, yeah, like it, I, I, perhaps the, the body is the key or is one of the keys, you know, like complexity is another key, but um, cultivating our capacity to feel and to stay open hearted and curious and in the face of grief and uncertainty and dissonance. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I yes, I think it's the, uh, one of the, um, the untapped resources, the huge untapped resources that each of us individually has. It sounds a little bit, um, far-fetched to think that you know if more people have the capacity to be in touch with the fullness of their experience and therefore tolerate dissonance without having to make it go away um that that would somehow (laughs) change the these bigger problems in the world and it is of course um Mm -hmm. not a direct journey between one and the other from one to the other but i don't know it's it seems like something that each of us can actually do something about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you said that, you know, cause of course it's like, it's very simplistic to just say, say that it's all about the, our capacity to feel fully or, but, but um, yeah, like I, when I think about what can I do, you know, without becoming um, an activist in my own way and actually the activism coming out of a reactivity and a, polarization and and admit that I don't really know what's happening and that I'm scared. Um, But actually to find a kind of connection to other human beings through that um, seems to be like one of the ways I know, you know, that that, that feels the right way to go in all of this. Yeah. I'm glad that you talked about connection because after all, um, none of us is, an island and um and the i think the often magic happens in the space between people so the connections that we make with other people are 
an important part of resilience in, in the faith, but both at an individual level and as, at a system level, the resilience, um, uh, cultivating resilience in the face out of um, a lot of changing circumstances and our own individual capacity to tolerate dissonance is an enabler um, to making connections, particularly connections with people who don't necessarily agree with us. Mm. I would love to ask you about um, what, like, what could you offer people listening if, you know, as um, something they could try with clients that could, you know, help them apply something we've been talking about today. I know that again, that's very simplistic, but you know, something, something they could try with their clients that might help them um, to listen for the meaning making that um, is, is subject, um, you know, is, is hidden within what the client is saying. Mm. I guess one thing I would offer is to, I think I mentioned this earlier, but to really consider that um, behind so many words that our clients use, there is probably all of them, but some more than others, there is um, meaning. And that um, I, as the coach, the, the listener, um, will always be assuming a particular meaning, that the client is making meaning of that word in a particular way. And um, to, to really question that, um, what does the client actually mean? So what, what specific thing you do, if you hear the client using a word again and again, like responsibility or, um, or well, responsibility is a good one, um, or good enough, you know, anything, whatever, whatever it is, to, to think of that, that word or phrase as a place for curiosity and exploration. And then, so you can ask, you, you can just inquire as to what that person means. And there are ways to do that, that, um, you know, many of you will have learned about or will learn about how to, how to dig deep around meaning. But it could be as simple as just saying, wow, when I hear you say that word, what it means to me is X, and I wonder what it means to you. Um, and and then you can can work with that, and and you can also then ask, okay, so when you when you say that word, what emotion comes up for you? What sensation? If you can close your eyes and feel into wh- where you feel that in your body, what's happening is you're in your body as you say that word. Um, and you might ask them to just say it again and again and notice what comes up. Um, and, and, and then, um, and then you, you know, I might ask them, it just depends on what the context is, but I might ask them, what if you used a different word? What happens now? Or what if you breathe into or see if you can kind of shift or loosen that feeling in your body? What happens now? I, I find that changing the word is a really avail- available thing. That's what, what I need. What do you mean by that? I didn't quite, yes, yeah, I'm glad you said that. You mean like you said, so changing the word from responsibility to a different word or? Yeah, yeah. Because for example. So, yeah. So for someone who uses that word over and over again, that word responsibility will be just loaded with meaning and particularly about what it means for them. Right. Um, so, so Okay, when you say responsibility, that evokes all kinds of stories for you. What if you used a different word? What, like, um, could be um, uh, opportunity or um, a request that someone makes of me? Or, you know, I don't know. It depends on the context. It might be something different. But the word itself is so loaded for most people that just a different word that I'll give you the, a really simple example, which I may have used before, but, um, but several years ago when my kids were young, I had a, a friend who noticed that I was constantly, when I was talking about my family, I used words like have to and need to a lot. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, wow, I noticed this pattern. What if you used a different word? And, and so I really consciously for the next several months um, 
every time I notice myself saying I have to or I need to with regard to them, I changed it to want to or I could or seems like it might be a good idea. Anything didn't matter, but don't use the words that were loaded with meaning for me. Um, Unhelpful meaning in this case. And that shift in language created a huge shift in the way I made sense of what it meant to be a good mother, what my responsibility to the family was in terms of, you know, X amount of time at home. It really loosened things up in unexpected ways. So that's what I mean. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it it makes me think of, and I've seen you write about hero in success and hero in defeat. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the way you use it. And I found that really useful for um you know kind of listening where people are you know kind of in defeat in their story like have to i have to do this i mean i'm not you know i don't know um if that's quite the right you know to to apply it just to what you were saying i don't i know very little about it but you know sometimes people can be like um talking about something as if it's the way it is you know and there's a sense of impossibility um and what i hear in, the, in what you're saying is there's a reframe that, that it creates a new sense of success or possibility. Yeah. It's like, so I might ask uh, uh, the client, so what do you want? You know, in what direction would you like to move this? In the, and in the case of my example that I used a minute ago, I wanted to feel and be less trapped by my sense of responsibility about, about what the kind of tight, boundaries and rules around what I had to do as, as a mother. Um, It wasn't that I didn't want to be a good mother. I just didn't, the rules weren't working for me anymore, but the rules I had created for myself essentially. Um, So, you know, what did, what way did I want things to move? Well, are have to and need to, are those generative? Are those enabling me to move toward what I want or are they keeping me stuck or are they moving in the opposite direction? And those, I just, I didn't know for sure. I suspected they were limiting. So I just experimented with different words, which created a different meaning for me, which created it along with a different sense of my body, different emotions, different judgments. And um, it, it seems really simple, but when you think of words as being kind of the, both the manifestation of and the doorways into a person's meaning, words suddenly become like a huge, huge possibility for change. Mm. No, I, I, I think it's a game changer. I, I love even the simple thing of what's your definition of success, you know? So, um, you know, I, I might even use that as a prompt sometimes just to, to surface people's um, implicit, often definitions of what it means to be successful and um, how in the situation when they might be being invited to reframe what it means to be successful in a way that creates possibility and, and liberation. And that stuff's just deep, you know, it's deep work. You know, you said like, it sounds so simple, but, but it, it, you know, it creates such a new sense of possibility for that person. Yeah. Um, it's very transformational. One of the, one of the um, properties of a complex system of which we ourselves are of course people are infinitely complex is that little shifts can have outsized impact Um, and sometimes big interventions have no impact whatsoever or maybe the an unintended consequence so i like to think of shifting words or shifting some kind of a sensation in our body you know regulating a sensation in our body those little shifts you don't know if they're going to have a big impact, but they certainly could. Mm. Um, and I've got one more question for you, which is like, what, what's on the leading edge of your work these days? Like, I love kind of tuning into that, you know, like what, what is it that's like you're passionate about that maybe you're exploring at the moment? Uh-huh. Um, well, I wouldn't have guessed that this would be on the leading edge of my work. Um, but I've been, because I've had so much loss in the last really two years of my life, really, but mm-hmm. intensely in the last um, four and a half months, um, during which I've lost my mother and my, my brother, one of my two brothers, to very, very awful cancers, awful. Um, 
no cancer is good, but these were particularly painful and awful. And also my mother-in-law, um, all in the last four and a half months, I've been thinking a lot about grief and, um, because I can't really get away from it <laughs> at the moment. Mm. And, and just, um, so there's personal grief and how, how it relates to um, complexity and adult development and, so, and our somatic experience. I've just found it really, really helpful for me to frame it as, you know, grief is a thing that um, the, the, the things that have led up to this feeling of grief and loss for me were unpredictable. And the experience itself of grief and loss is unpredictable, and I really can't control it. Um, but what, what, and what I can do is notice the ways that it's really um, a real trigger and a threat to, to my identity, for example, because I'm, I think of myself as a happy person. And for the last six months, practically every conversation I have with people is about loss and, and sadness, and it just doesn't feel like me. And mm. so there's this, you know, I'm noticing all kinds of um, action urges to, I don't know, stop feeling sad, have more fun, you know, not talk about what's on my mind, you know, all kinds of stuff to fix it. And um, of course, it's not helpful, um, but it's helpful to be able to notice it. So I've been putting it in this, you know, frame uh, that I already know that I find useful. And that's been helpful. So that's, that's one of my explorations. And you and I talked, I think, before the recording started about grief at a bigger level, um, at a more global level. And so I think all of us experience personal loss. So I think this might be helpful work for people, but then just at this kind of meta level of the, the, I don't know. It's like the, there's a low grade sense of grief and loss that so many of us feel right now because our world is, like we're losing things, you know, um, which I suppose has always been true, but climate change, civility, uh, you know, the kind of democratic process that at least we've known in my country in the whole time I've been alive up until now, um, there's a lot of loss and a sense of helplessness and inability to control. So I just think there's something in it um, at a lot of different levels. Mm, yeah. Do, do you feel that there's something emerging for you out of that grief? You know, I'm also someone like you that um, I kind of tend to be quite happy and see positive and um, I'm touched by what you share, like all that loss, you know, like I'm like, wow, that's just, you know, you just can't get away from it there. And, um, without wanting to like turn it into something positive right now, you know, like to get caught in that. But I wonder if there's something emerging for you out of, you know, being, being in swimming in that grief. Uh, I, I think so. Uh, yeah. It's, um, it's not always pleasant, but it's a, I'm really noticing a heightened, capacity well my senses are, are are heightened i guess um so there's the the heightening of my senses you know like i'm i'm noticing more beauty i'm noticing more sadness i'm feeling both of those more um and i guess although you know stay tuned i think i think there's also a heightened capacity to tolerate wide ranges of emotion and experiences. I mean, I don't know. I can't tell how much of that is kind of theoretical because I have all this theory about how that works Yeah, um, and how much of it is, is actual lived experience for me. But, um, well, I do, you know, some of it's real lived experience because wow, my emotions cover a much wider range in a short period of time. It's almost like, you know, little kids, you notice how, you know how little kids can be happy one second and crying the next and then suddenly happy again. <laughs> sort of feels like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and as you speak, I actually speaking of little kids with my daughter. Even though it's almost like on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of the love that I feel for her, but also seeing her grow so fast, it's like I um, I feel a sense of like impermanence or something. Mm-hmm. Like I like it's it's too big for me to hold, and she's too precious for me to hold on to. And, um, that, that challenges me and, and, um, breaks my heart open. And I can feel in those moments how I get that kind of sensory, um, attunement that you just mentioned, you know, it's like, as if things become vivid and I'm, I'm like snapped out of the kind of habituation and there's a kind of poignancy or poetry to, to life that, that, that comes to the foreground. And, um, in those moments I feel like I'm in a different space, you know, like, and, and, and like very permeable space where I can, and my heart is open, you know, my heart is open and, and, um, um, it's like, I don't like it, but I love it. It's kind of <laughs> weird, you know, oh. like, so, um, somehow there's something about that, that, that like speaks to the wider world as well for me. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, the same range of um, of experiences and emotions and um, that can coexist that coexist for you as you describe, you know, watching and being with your daughter. Those, interestingly, are you know those are available to us um, always if we're open to them. I think and. Uh, both in joy and in grief and in uh, love and in loss and all of those things. And while it's not fun, you know, you said you don't like it sometimes. It It is, um, it's such a gift. Yeah. And, um, you know, like as we come to the end of our conversation, I'm just, st- something you said about not, um, you know, like I know so much theory, so I... Uh, want to be careful I don't kind of like almost espouse that's you didn't use that word but that's what I'm taking from you know when I overreach almost um, that's something that I've been on my mind you know it's like this um, I think it fits with this conversation on grief where where it's like, like there's a different way I feel like I'm being asked to participate in the world and um, if I'm if I'm like it's different than being in the, the like hyper theorized mind, you know, like um, it's, it's like, it's not that it abandons my analytical mind, but it, but it includes much more, you know, like my, these sensory capacities, like the body, the open heartedness, the sense of poetry, um, like fully participating in the moment as it's taking place. Yes. Um, And, and, Again, I don't like that, but I love it. It's like um, my my habituated self likes the the kind of castle of my theorized world, but but I, it's vulnerable to to be permeated by life. But I but I at the same time it's like yes, you know, it's like oh, I'm alive. Yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 map. You know, many of us have heard the idea that the map is not the territory. And it's not. And the map can also help us see the territory in ways that can, um, that enable um, the experience. Mm. So I think both of those things are true. And they, they help each other as long as we don't become, for me anyway, become kind of subject, so enamored with the theory that it mm. becomes the thing. I'm really glad that we decided to speak for longer today because I think, you know, I'm really touched by this last part of our conversation. And I just want to say thanks for being available to have this conversation with me. Thank you, Joel. It's been fun as always. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. And a reminder that the early bird enrollment is now open for our upcoming live training, The Power of Embodied Transformation. This program will teach you how to connect to the deep wisdom that lives in the body so you can create lasting change with your clients. 
head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation to book your spot. And remember, you can get the early bird discount if you join by the 22nd of May. Oh, no.